Welcome to the Financial Planners South Africa podcast, a show dedicated to driving the positive evolution of financial advice, specifically in South Africa. To join a global community of financial advisors, sharing and learning with one another to drive the positive evolution of financial advice, head to xyadvisor.com. Portfolio Metrics is thrilled to bring you this podcast in support of our common passion, people and the evolution of wealth management. Our global business links precision investment management to expert financial advice through partnerships and technology. Portfolio Metrics is an authorized financial services provider. AssetMap is a proud sponsor of this podcast. Are you looking for the next big thing in advisor technology? AssetMap is used by thousands of financial advisors to help create more meaningful conversations with clients. See for yourself how AssetMap is leading the next phase of financial advice delivery. Learn more at asset-map.com forward slash Louis for special listeners discount. This episode is proudly brought to you by Alan Gray. They say it's important to live for today. Although that might be true, we can't forget to plan for tomorrow. There's a lot of it left, after all. Alan Gray is an authorized financial services provider. Visit www.alangray.co.za to learn how we build long-term wealth for clients. Welcome to another episode of Financial Planners South Africa. This year, we kick off the show with a guest all the way from Jupiter, Florida, Mary Martin. Mary, it's wonderful to have you here, and I've been looking forward to this conversation this whole weekend, delving into your book, and finally having to have this chat with you. Well, thanks so much for having me. I've been looking forward to it as well. Mary, you do some interesting work in the financial planning space, and Often in our conversations and from the work that you put out, you challenge the existing assumptions. But before we get to that, I'd like to rewind a little bit of where your love for learning has started. You know, it's very clear from everything that you put out that you go down a lot of rabbit holes and you tend to look at, you know, the true sources of information. Give our listeners a little bit of a background of where Mary started this love for learning. Um, you know, as a young person in school, I, it's, it's so boring. I am such an advocate for school. And I was, uh, I was really involved in school. I remember all of my teachers. I had these really powerful people in my life, powerful advocates and mentors always. I, and I always say to people, these things could have gone sideways in so many ways. When you think of ways that kids are abused these days or their trust is misused. And, you know, this is the 70s and 80s. And and I just had the most wonderful mentors, men and women, who just took me under their wing and allowed me to do things that nobody else was allowed to do in the class or in the school or in the job. And they just saw something in me. And I think they wanted to nurture it. And so I was just allowed to kind of do my thing. And, and it never stopped. You know, when I got to my doctoral program, my, I had this amazing um, doctoral fellowship that nobody else had. And that was the head of the school of education said, you know, you don't want to do that stuff that everybody else does. Why don't you do this, 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 and this. And he let me do just the most spectacular things and just started this 
this amazing career of getting paid to learn about things. You know, who does, who, who does that? I got paid these, these, at the time, enormous amounts of money to really learn about something and write a book about it. And it was just a dream. So it never stopped. It continues, as you know, because you read the book. That's a wonderful journey. And, you know, what I can see is how you absorb this information, rework it, and then, you know, put your own version of that out to your readers. Yes, but always, you know, always acknowledge I have such a respect for the history of ideas. You know, I read widely, and that was always something that was. Um, that was advocated for it was forget about what your major is, you know, if you're in college or forget about what your primary interest is, read everything you can get your hands on, you know, read a book a week, read a book a day, read, just read as much as you can. And so I really have a respect for, for just that, that history of somebody comes up with an idea and then somebody else puts a spin on it and another spin and another spin. And, you know, I really don't know if there are any new ideas. And it's just a, a matter of taking what has already been said and done and applying it to something in the present and in your own way. Um, but I never want to forget that, you know, the lineage of anything that I'm thinking about because, you know, none of it came from me. And then how did you stumble on the financial services industry? Oh, yeah, stumble. Talk about stumble. Well, A, A, uh, I was living at Palm Beach at the time and my neighbor turned into my husband and he was a CFP. So, and I started writing books for the financial services industry right after I left um, my doctoral program. And I also got a job writing study guides and curriculum for study uh, courses for the CFP exam, in addition to writing items and full cases. So, and then for all of the series 65, series seven, so for all of those exams, that was just sort of this fun, I thought it was fun. It was this fun thing I did on the side in addition to writing books. So it just kind of snowballed. And um, I majored in assessment and evaluation and curriculum for my doctorate. So I really knew assessment and rubrics and learning and how you determine, you know, what the heck learning is, how to, you know, do it and how to establish whether or not it's actually happened you know, whether or not anybody's learned anything and to what degree. So that's always been interesting to me that we assume because somebody has taken a course that they've, you know, learned like, some, what does that mean to learn something? What does it mean to teach the course? You know, what is material anyway? And what is considered curriculum? What is, what is sort of important enough to be something that you teach, which leads me to this book and something that the average person by no means would think is important enough to teach or something that you even could learn. That is so true. I'm curious of what it is that intrigued you about financial advisors specifically. Well, it was sort of the the water I was swimming in. You know, I, I have been surrounded by financial advisors for as long as my husband, even a little longer, and financial planners mostly, and mostly in the US. And they've just been my friends and my neighbors and it, it was purely an accident. You know, it's an accident of geography and just how it all turned out. Um, but what I noticed was uh, they, they were, and, and, they, and remember, I came, from, I came from writing the exam and writing the curriculum guides. And this is before the recent, most recent changes, at least here in the United States. So I knew 
better than they did, just how much training they had on human beings. And it rhymed with like, as my husband says, it rhymes with hero, you know? <laughs> and so there were these parts of the exam, I think it was 8% at the time, that were considered sort of um, professional development. Um, they were considered the, you know, communication maybe, but still like nothing even close to this. So I, I knew what they were doing. Um, I had them all in my life. I worked for eight years for an organization that worked with them. So I knew what was happening. And, and, I, and I saw that there was this concentration on the doing. And if you think about charging somebody for a service, though, I mean, frankly, you know, they want to know, what are you, you know, doing? What are you doing for that money? And they, so the concentration in most careers, it makes perfect sense. You're providing a service. What the heck is the service? Right. And they're paying you for this service. And, you know, you're not going to say you're paying me to like be this, you know, grounded, regulated nervous system. That means nothing to anybody. However, and I know I'm getting a little ahead of myself, no matter what your way of being is as a person, it's affecting people anyway. So it's not like you either have it or you don't. Everybody has a way of being when they're with their clients when they're with their partners, when they're with their children, and maybe that's different, I don't know. But you have it already. And the question is, is that way of being um, that you are embodying, because it is like your actual body that's doing this, is your way of being helpful? You know, is it, is it, are you in a state of care and compassion with yourself and with others? Are you defensive? Are you um, on the offense? Um, is everything a power play? Is everything a zero-sum game? You know, what What does your way of being say to somebody who's in the room with you? Are you competing with them? Are you an expert? Are you the person who has all the wisdom that you're going to like drop on them? So uh, my query is, what is your way of being? Do you, do you even know? And can you feel it? A. Can you experience it when you drop into your own body? And this may make no sense to a lot of people, but when you drop into your own experience, what do you find? Because whatever you find is affecting who you are and how you're interacting with other people, whether you know it or not. So this isn't like, oh, get this thing that you should have. It's you already have this thing, but what is yours doing? You already have a way of being. Everybody does. And how's it working for you? <laughs> you know, how is it, how is it working for you? And how is it, um, how do you feel it intrapersonally? And, and what do you feel from others as a result of your way of being? What do you bring out in people? Do you even know? Is that something that you pay attention to or, or, or interested in listening for? Does that help? Wow. There's, there's so much in, in that response. And I, I want to focus a little bit on the piece around this fixation that we have as an industry around the value that we're adding. And what you're saying is it's, yes, it is important about what we're doing, but it's equally important how you show up and your way of being. What led you to that conclusion? Um, well, I've been practicing mindfulness for longer than, uh, well, for, well, actually not, I was meditating in a different a different style of meditation for years, TM. And then about 15 years ago, I discovered, and you know the story of that, how, how um, mindfulness came into my life because 
I really wasn't living in my body, which is a weird sentence. Uh, but, but it was so true for me. I was this like brain, you know, with legs and really great brain. And that was the thing that I prided myself on. You know, I, um, I'm so smart and I've got this giant IQ and I've got this PhD and I, and I've done all the things, I've done all these things, but what, so what? And it was a really humbling experience because my values that I got from I don't know where I got them from. I don't know. Maybe my parents with their Ivy League educated PhDs. But, you know, I got this I got this message that the most important thing was my brain and my accomplishments and my achievements and this. And I'm not blaming anybody. I got that message and and I ran with it for sure. Um, And then I came up against this moment where it became clear that I was I missed the, the boat and I had that was a message, and that is a message for sure, but it wasn't um, the message of a human life. It was the message of a human brain. And there's this whole body that's, you know, attached to that human brain at, that I was neglecting for years. But while being obsessed with fitness, while being obsessed with thinness, so you'd think, oh, Mary was paying attention to her body, but in all the wrong ways. You know, I wasn't paying attention to how it felt to be me. And in fact, I was doing all the things I was doing to not feel how it felt to be me. So from the outside, you saw one thing, you know, wow, look, look at that. And the inside was uh, completely disconnected. And so it took me um, a long time, it took me years to get close to um to who I really, you know, to, to what was really happening and what I was avoiding all of those years. And once I did that, as painful as it was, and I had been in therapy, by the way, for years before that, didn't touch any of this. So this practice, which by the way, is not about like reliving all your childhood stories. It's not about that. It's not about just all of your stories at all. It's about recognizing that you have stories that are attached to these sensations in your body and you're allowing this to dictate how your life goes. And that might sound really weird, um, but that's what I found in the practice. I found that the closer I got to how I was actually feeling, you'll hear people say things like, mindfulness is liberating. And I was always like, what is with the liberating? I don't understand it. And now I get it. Because it's liberating once you have done your work of touching your own pain and your own suffering and realizing that you're not going to die. You know, you touch it, it's horrible, it's upsetting, whatever. You, you learn how to be with what is in your life rather than running away from it. That's what they're talking about when they say liberation. And so that's what I feel. And when I saw these financial advisors with the doing, 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 and the achieving, 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 and the Forbes 100 and 400 and under 40 and all of this and all of the concentration on, I won't say the wrong things, definitely something that's very important in the business, but this lack of concentration on the human being behind it all. And then when I look at, I'm a bit of a futurist, and when I, when I look at the way the industry could be going, the way the world is going, and I think, well, let's just say that a lot of the technologies that are underway now in 20 years um, have been perfected 
you know, what is there left for a human financial advisor to do? And it's certainly nothing technical. And so what's left is for people who still, I mean, there are people now who, who are happy to not deal with a person, but that for people who want to deal with people, if you think about what they're doing, they're voting for humans, like they're casting their vote for people, that people are important. And so how are people are important? And the way you connect with them, the way you relate with them is important. And that comes from one place. That comes from the human, the mammalian nervous system. And it comes from this well-regulated, grounded, clear presence that people feel like they can open up around, that people trust with their secrets and with their money and with their lives and with their dreams. So the most important thing to me, I think in any job, but for financial advisors is who you are and how you are as a human being, because that's going to be ultimately where your value comes from. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Mary, a lot of people in the industry talk about, you know, showing up with empathy. And we have Brene Brown talking about how empathy is important. And over the last 10 years, we've been hearing empathy, empathy, empathy. And you have a slightly different take on it and bring in compassion. I'd love to hear you tell us more about that. And this isn't just me. This is, you know, so, and you know this, everybody knows this. This is, this is, this is really easy. Okay. Ready? You know that empathy hurts. Everybody knows it. So A, why would you do that? Okay. And, and B, the FM, um, RIs. So the research shows that empathy really does activate the power, the pain centers in the brain. And, but you don't need to even hear that because you know that empathy hurts. But as it turns out, compassion opens up the, the reward circuitry. So compassion is actually healing. And if you had a choice to do something that hurt you or healed you and others during your day and in your, in your job, what would you rather do? Now, this is not to say that empathy is not important because it's the it's where it all starts. It's it's and and mindfulness and empathy is a little different from what a lot of other people are talking about. And all we say is once you have touched your own suffering. I mean, it's whatever it is, whatever your suffering is, it's it's painful. And and you come out on the other side and you now know something about every single human being you come in contact with because they're human too and they suffer too. But if you're spending your time avoiding your, your we call it the unwanted, if you're spending your life avoiding your unwanted, you're not in the position for actual empathy. All you can do is like try to understand how somebody might be feeling X. And when you read uh, Nick Epley, you find out that guess what we can't do? Perspective take. So when we, you know, role play, it actually doesn't work. So when you're role playing, and if you think about it intellectually, this makes perfect sense. When you're role playing, you're yourself, you know, obviously, because you can't be somebody else. So you're yourself and you're imagining what it could be like to be somebody else, but you're yourself doing that. You can't get away from being yourself. So you're still you imagining not being you, but that, but you're you and you, so you can't get away from yourself. And if you touch your own unwanted and you have this sort of, you know, it's, it's, 
you acquire a vulnerability once you've done that, that you might not have had before. I mean, it's all upside. It really is all upside, except for the moment, you know, truth be told, um, you know, when you're really exploring your unwanted and we have ways to do it. So you're, it's not, you're not like fire hosing yourself with pain. You know, you, you go in a little bit, you come back out. So you're not drowning in your own pain. And we give you skills to, to sort of titrate your own pain and to, to have a little of it and, and just build your capacity for it. But once you have done that, you, the thing you know is you know of pain. And it's that two-letter, super powerful word, you know of internal pain. And every single other human being walking around on the planet has that. They have a pain. And you now know of pain. And that's enough. That's enough. And what it, what it does is it has this amazing byproduct of, of it just like your heart just bursts open with compassion. Because you just see everybody else differently now. Everybody, you know, it's, and it's not like you see them as the walking wounded, but you, you just see this poignant, you know, profound um, heart that everybody has that's, that's a little, you know, broken because you know yours is and, and you know that, that they're capable of healing and you know that you can help them with, with your own heart by being in a state of care and compassion for them. And it feels so wonderful. It feels a lot better than feeling miserable for people, which I have done a lot. So I know that. Um, Mindfulness-based stress reduction classes are filled with people who, quite frankly, are dying, like for real dying, and who are in chronic pain and uh, suffering chronically in other ways. And it's, as an MBSR teacher, the most difficult thing to learn is to to not get hooked on their pain. Um, at, it, so it was really hard for me to not do that. But then once you let that go and you instead replace that with compassion, because there's it, it leads to nowhere to just drown in other people's pain. I mean, it can't, there's like, I don't, there's no good that comes of that, but there's good that comes of compassion. So that's what we do in mindfulness. We, we don't avoid our pain. We don't avoid the pain of others, but we also don't um, steep ourselves in it because that's not, um, that's not healing and it's not positive. Yeah, so that empathy doesn't necessarily reduce their suffering. It just transfers some of it. Yeah, that doesn't, your empathy for somebody is you feeling pain. You feeling, you know, their pain is what people will say, even though you're not really feeling their pain, but but let's say you are, how is that helping versus being in a state of care and compassion and moving that into, into help, into, into wanting to help and wanting to elevate and wanting to heal. And that's what compassion does. And that is so true. I think when you speak to financial advisors, the things that stand out is that they tend, they tend to be people that want to help. Mm -hmm. you know, they're in this industry to want to help people. Yeah. But yet we get caught up in the technical piece and, you know, you might even say behavioral finance and it ends up being less helpful sometimes. Yes. And the behavioral finance piece is like, um, you know, it's learning about it. So we here in the U.S. at least for, I don't know, maybe a decade have been concentrating on investor behavior and investor psychology, um, but also on that relationship, uh, on that relationship for making decisions on that relationship for moving forward plans or not on that, you know, 
my favorite thing with advisors is they, their agendas, you know, their attachment to their agendas. And, and when you say like, you don't have, you can have an agenda, you should always have an agenda, but um, just like we do for mindfulness class, we have an agenda and then the guidance is to hold it lightly and allow for whatever arises to dictate what happens next. And the only way you can do that is if you know how to do that, you know, is if you are trained yourself to be checking in on your own way of being and how you're showing up. And so that you can have the sort of strength and groundedness to allow, to really listen for and allow what is most important for the other person to lead the meeting. So your agenda isn't necessarily what happens. Your agenda is something that would be great if it occurred that way, um, but it's sometimes even better if none of that happens and instead you listen. And at the end, the client says something like, I never said that to anybody before, or I wasn't planning on talking about that. And your only response really is thank you. And sometimes that's the meeting and you have to be ready for that inside. I think the wording that you use in your book is that the agenda helps you to prepare, but then it doesn't necessarily mean that that is the structure of the meeting. And that's something that really resonated with me because a lot of the examples that people that have attended your mindfulness-based courses are giving is these surprises, these pleasant surprises around client experiences. Can you share with us what some of the experiences that have stood out for you over the years? There largely around that they're what i just said they're largely around they're, they're surprises they're um when an advisor becomes comfortable with silence and with the awkwardness of a person who's like just struggling with with their meaning and with what they're saying and i know y'all have been taught to prompt and to um to help to kind of you know, tease the thing out of the person. But there, is, there are moments, and I'm not saying they're all the time, but after you've been practicing for a while, you sense there's like, a, you sense that somebody is struggling and needs to, to do the thing on their own. And you, they, the advisor sort of sits back and the person just talks and stops, sometimes for a while. And sometimes cries, sometimes ugly cries, and and then talks again. And the advisor is just, I had this one advisor, and it's in the book, and which was really remarkable, said, I was using the client's story and how they stopped and started as my anchor. Like as I was, I, it was the practice. My practice became this person and how they were stopping and starting. And I was just allowing for it. And the, the more upset that person got, the more kind of open and open-hearted I got and the more compassionate I got. And I could feel it. And so this person just told the story. And as I said before, said that, that she had never said, that, said it to anybody ever, never told this story. And so it's things like that. It's things like an advisor says, okay, um, after practicing for a while, realizes the second before 
they're about to get on camera because this was during a COVID thing. The second before, and they realize, you know what? Like, I'm tired. I'm really tired. I rushed to get here. I was just really annoyed because I had to do something with my kid that my partner said that they would do and they didn't do. And it's like still in my head. And my body was really dysregulated from all of those moments put together. And that was that was what uh, Daniel Kahneman calls noise. So all these things are noise in the nervous system. And and for your listeners, he's the guy who, you know, writes about thinking fast and slow and he and system one and system two thinking and writes about biases. But he also wrote this fantastic book about noise. And noise is just as responsible for the inferiority of human judgment as biases, but we don't notice it. And in mindfulness, we learn to notice it. Like we go out there looking for it. We call it a sound check. We do, we do a check on our own nervous systems and say, what is present here that could possibly get in my way in the way I'm interacting with my client? What might close me? You know, and it could be pain. It could be being annoyed. It could be like this advisor. I was in a rush. I got up late. You know, it's just this whole kind of perfect storm of things where they were going into the room at just not at all grounded. But fortunately, as this person said, all it took was like, what's going to happen in one minute if you don't show up in, in one minute in that Zoom room, or if you show up and say, can you excuse me for a minute? I just need one minute. I'll be right back. And you get yourself off camera and off mic and you ground yourself. You can do that in one minute if you know how. And if you have a practice of doing that and you, if you've learned what your unique nervous system can most benefit from. And then this person goes back on camera and it's like a whole new day and was able to really um, be open to the fact that, guess what? Their agenda wasn't going to be what was happening. And they actually said, I don't know because I had my agenda and I know I was annoyed. And I think if I just turned the camera on and I just went, I would have just been like, okay, and gone down my agenda. But that's not what happened. And that's not what happened with the meeting. So it's these little surprises, little surprises like after we do mindful movement, which is weird, right? You experience, tell me about mindful movement for you. Yeah, it's finally slowing down to notice things that's always on autopilot. I know even in your book, you mentioned how you work with children and how they, you know, get up in 10 second increments and then in 20 and then in 30. And I even imagined me doing that and just the awareness that we bring before we jumped on the call. I told you about my one-year-old daughter and how she's experiencing grass and you know wanting to taste everything. And it's just that curiosity and you know awareness of things that are normally on autopilot. Mm. Yeah, and so some people um, tap, you know, tap their uh, their hands, tap their feet, and and it is remarkable how. Um, once you once you kind of have that on your radar, how distracting that is. And for people who do it, they're shocked by how distracted they now are with other people tapping because they realize that it is impossible to truly listen to somebody and be present for somebody if you're tapping. Like you just can't. And as M. Scott Peck, Peck says, um, if you're doing anything else, you're not really listening. So taking notes, like, no. 
and there's a time, you know, there's obviously a time for doing that. But when it comes to this deep listening that we do, which I also call deep witnessing, you know, you're, you're really um, the, the type of listening that that we do that is called for not all the time, but sometimes is really what somebody needs. The other person needs to a say their stuff and to, to get it out. Um, and they can probably get it out with anybody, but they're not going to feel, uh, feel seen and heard with anybody. And that takes a specific kind of presence and a specific kind of listening that we do that involves not doing a lot of stuff with your body, you know, if you're an animated person. So for some people, it can be very difficult to learn how to listen deeply, but it's a, it's a really, it's a wonderful discipline to just be like, where the heck is my body right now? Like, what am I, what am I doing? You know, <laughs> what am I doing and why? And, and is it something that's useful or skillful or, you know, has an outcome or why is this occurring? So it, it, it brings even the, or maybe especially the movement. Uh, I have a, somebody who's in the class, who's um, a swimmer. He's a competitive swimmer and coach. And he said, this is like, teaching somebody how to swim. And I said, I do tell. <laughs> I have no idea how that's true. And he said, you don't get better at swimming by just swimming. You don't get, and I thought, oh, that's, that's what I've been doing wrong. You know, he said, you don't just get in the water and swim. You do specific drills that, you know, are geared to do one thing to the point of automaticity, you know, of that unconscious competence. And then, you know, you add something, you, you do something different next time. And that first thing you did has become automatic. But if I were to tell you everything you had to do to swim, you would be paralyzed by thinking about all of the things you had to do. And so in mindfulness class, you do, you know, this one thing, you know, do the body scan for a week. And people are like, why do I have to do this thing for a week? And and it's not just a week. I have news for you. It's sort of the rest of your life. Um, but the more you get in the habit of doing, of checking in on your body, guess what? The more you check in on your body, not because you think of doing it, but because it occurs to you, because we become what we practice. So you're creating this brain. This, you know, our brains are predictive. They, they predict what's going to happen next, believe it or not. And then they do, do the things accordingly. They allocate re resources accordingly. And if you intentionally do whatever it is, body scan, swim a, a certain way, over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, you're creating a brain that predicts that you're going to do that. So you're not doing it consciously. And then guess what? You notice you're getting a sore throat before you ordinarily would, or you realize you're tapping and these things begin to occur, as many people in the class say, it's like magic, which, which is, you know, which, and I'm always very quick to say, it's not like magic. It's neuroscience. It's you are practicing. So you're creating a brain that does these things. It, you're creating a brain where it's an option to ground yourself in a moment that is appearing tense. It's an option to suddenly sit back in your sort of deep listening um, presence and allow somebody to tell their story 
it's not something you're thinking about. It's something you sense and it happens. And that's what the practice, I mean, that's what any practice does, is it creates a brain that does whatever the thing is as a matter of course. And so this is changing your way of being um, to something that is more skillful for your clients and for your other relationships. Mary, I want to delve a little bit into this idea of the advisor who's responsible for the client wellness. And I'd love to hear your take on where those boundaries come in. You mentioned a couple of times in your book around the frequency of contact that an advisor has. Like, What role do you see the advisor of the future play in the work that you're specifically doing as it pertains around wellness? Well, I'm a uh, trauma-sensitive uh, mindfulness practitioner, and there's a lot around trauma that um, advisors probably should know, but the, but that's the line. So unless you are a therapist or a financial therapist, that's not something you're getting into. You're not healing somebody's you know trauma in your twelve times you see somebody a year. Um, so what when I say wellness, what I mean is your way of being and your way of listening is looking out for the other person's nervous system because that's what you know mammals do. So so we're social animals and we not only communicate but we collaborate, we cooperate and we co-regulate each other's nervous systems and I don't think people think of that when they think of oh that's you know what we do. But if I say, you know, when you reach out to somebody for help, that's your nervous system. That's it's called your social engagement system. That's your nervous system saying I don't know if I can really do this on my own right now, but I am acknowledging so-and-so as a helper for my nervous system, so I'm going to reach out for them to them. So if a client is reaching out to you physically or calling you, uh, it could be you know something about their account, obviously, but it could also be that their nervous system has recognized your nervous system as something that is regulating for them, which is a wonderful compliment. And even more of a reason to make sure that your nervous system is is regulated and you know how to get it there in a moment's notice. So I do think that those who have the knowledge, you know, with knowledge comes responsibility. And once you are aware of how much you can affect people, I I think you know you are you are obligated to do your level best to be positively affecting and nurturing other people's nervous systems and regulating them when you can. Now, as far as their overall wellness and what financial advisors are responsible for, the fiduciary part, I totally get. And I I think it depends on the designation that you have and what they say. However, even the CFP board in the United States is now having investor psychology as of March 2022 uh, as a sliver of what they're testing. But still, that's not wellness. That's not well-being. But the decisions that you help people make, you know, this is like the fiduciary of the heart. You know, this, the decisions that you're helping people make should be for their ultimate well-being. and. That's not a small thing. And well-being, depending on who you talk to, has very many and varied different aspects of it. And I know financial well-being to some people is a thing in itself, and I'm not quite sure what it means. I, 
I guess it means what you think it means. Um, I've seen a couple of definitions, but what I'm saying is their overall well-being. You have um, a part to play in that because you're talking to them, uh, presumably, about their lives, like the whole, the totality of their lives and the direction of their lives and their decisions. And an important distinction I think needs to be made here, made here, because. What you find when you um, research decision making, which and and genetics and all the things that I researched, which is fascinating, it's that decisions might a decision that some people make, some somebody makes, might dictate the direction of their lives, but it does not dictate their happiness or their their subjective well being. So that's really important. So decisions that have resulted in tremendous financial loss in a direction somebody would have thought that they didn't want to go in. When you ask them 20 years later, they will frequently say, that's the best thing that ever happened to me, right? Or I'm so glad that that happened. So I wonder, I think the best you can do for for somebody's well-being is to help them with their decision-making. And as Shane Parrish has this wonderful class called Decision by Design, which I think everybody should take. And he, um, he recommends making decisions as late as possible. As late as possible because he says every decision that turned out being a bad decision was bad because the person says what? They say, if I knew then what I know now, right? Is that the Farnham Street Oh, yeah, yeah. So okay. he has this amazing course that um, I think I want to say it's 12 weeks long. Maybe it's not. No, it's 12 weeks. And and it's and some of it you're going to think, oh, I know this. Everybody thinks, oh, I know this. But about so many things, by the way. Um, but one of his one of my favorite things was you wait till the last possible minute to make the decision um, with the best information that you have. And so you the way just the way he articulates it so there's no such thing as a bad decision you know it's there's a bad decision making process a decision making process that lacks decision hygiene that doesn't take um and noise and biases and other things into account that doesn't wait till the last minute and allows urgency to rule the day instead of the importance of the decision you know is it urgent or is it actually important and if it's not important then and you're letting urgency run your decision-making, that's not a good sign. So instead, you wait until the last minute and you get all of the information that you possibly can. And what you get down is your process for helping your clients make decisions. And he doesn't talk about, no, you know, I want to say he talks, I don't think he talks about noise, um, but he doesn't talk about, he, he might talk about bias, but you get everything you know from all of your reading and things that have nothing to do with financial decisions and decision-making, but from human being decision-making, get all that down and you, you get, you make a decision-making process that's as good as it can be for the decision and as late as it can be for any decision. And then it is what it is because the thing that ends up dictating the person's ultimate satisfaction with the decision has nothing to do with the decision. It has to do with the person and how they think about the decision and the event. And you'll see that from um, George Bonanno's work at Columbia, the guy who wrote The Other Side of Sadness, with potentially traumatic events. He said, so 
you know, your husband dies in a car accident. That's a potentially, I would think that's pretty traumatic, right? He says, no, it's a potentially traumatic event. And it only becomes a a, a traumatic event when you decide that it's traumatic. And this goes for everything. And there are some things that, you know, very high probability that are going to be traumatic. You know, my sister died. You can bet that for my parents, that's for everybody that was pretty traumatic. But um, young widows, he talks about, you know, because there's some sense of like people who are 27 years old shouldn't be dying. However, for most events that we consider traumatic, he just considers them potentially traumatic. And the research does bear that out where some decision that you think was horrible um, in retrospect, it turns out to not be horrible. Or you say, oh, I learned so much. Like I went to law school, wholly bad decision, terrible. And I ended up leaving law school and I'm one of those, and it cost me like $70,000, whatever. And then, but I'm one of those people who looks back and says, I learned so much from doing that and then undoing that. And by the way, my decision-making process for that was horrible. So that was a combination of things, but I learned so much. So you would think, oh, $70,000, five months, when you, would, you when you add a bunch of things that happened up, you would think it was terrible. But, and maybe in the moment it was miserable, but in retrospect, it, it wasn't. And as it, as it is with any event, it is what you think it is. And that's what mindfulness that's another thing mindfulness teaches you. And a lot of that is genetic. It's true. There's this giant, you know, genetic chunk to that. So those sunny side of the street people, when something, you know, most people think is horrible happened and, and they're fine. That's, you know, they were probably born that way. There are a lot of people who are born that way. I know some of them. But for the rest of us, there is something we can do. You know, there are practices that we can do and we can change our relationship to the things that happen to us. And there is no such thing as something that has to be miserable, really. So the decisions that you help people make, I would focus on the decision making and not the decision necessarily. Thank you, Mary. I think that gives us a much wider framework for thinking about wellness. It isn't necessarily this, you know, defined construct. It's much broader than that. And as you're talking about decision making, you've spent obviously many years with the Financial Transitionist Institute as their learner in chief. I want to delve a little bit into that, just understanding what your role was and how the work that you're doing now is different from kind of that human side of financial planning? Sure. Susan and I wrote the book in 2000. It's a long time ago. Um, She needed um, a writer and my sister of all people um, knew her. So I did that with her and then other financial books and was in touch with her. Um, And then in, I want to say 2014, she wanted to, to pivot with her company, do something different. And I was around and I said, Oh, I'll help you for six months. (laughs) So eight years later. um, So it was really supposed to be a project. Um, And what I ended up doing was she had a bunch of tools that she and her community of practice had um, created over 20 years, really. It's 20 years of work. And they were, they would get together, you know, monthly and they would get together annually. And there wasn't a lot of structure to that really. 
so just it was what I knew and what I learned, what I was trained to do. So I created the program and wrote the textbook and um, created the exam and got it listed on FINRA. And so just did all that nonsense. And then the LMS, there was another one before the current one, and um, just kind of got it all structured. I mean, that's it. And then really started bringing my own work into it. But so I was never like a full-time employee, you know, that was something I did as a consultant. And I got more and more into, into my work um, with mindfulness. And it really, there was a lot of tension in the two of the things. And so I just went off to do my own because the work there is really about transitions. And that is like, is you know, that's what they do. They, they, they do the human dynamics of financial change. And that's really not what I do. And I also have a different take on transitions just in that um, from mindfulness practice, as you know, there's really, you really get a sense that we are constantly going in and out of things and, you know, things are coming and going. So I, I have a, a kind of a different take on it. And all, and, and as we just, as I just talked about, when it comes to decision-making, I, I don't know if, I think you can do the best you can with somebody's decision-making during transitions and of course, protect them, particularly if they're in an emotional state. Um, and, you know, and of course, guard them against making bad decisions or any decisions if it's not a good time for them to make a decision. Absolutely. Um, but I don't know how much responsibility you or, or I don't know. I, I don't know how much um, of that is responsible for how much how happy somebody ends up being. I think that's on them. And I think as an advisor, though, there's stuff you can do with that. You know, you can you can teach you have these practices that you've learned and you can teach them by example. You can be a role model for gratitude, for savoring. I've t I do entire firms where they make they make m mindfulness like the cornerstone of how they work. They don't really say they do, but they incorporate it into every little thing from from their the people who go outside for their meetings because being outside in nature is so good for so many people. And they don't like lecture people about how good it is to be outside. They just made this gentle suggestion to all of their clientele. Anybody, you know, bring your walking shoes, whoever wants to walk outside around the lake. And they found they found that most people took them up on it and their meetings went better. They were happier. Um, they felt better. They looked forward to their walks with their advisor. The advisor got in all their steps. Um, you know, so they they bring savoring in to meetings. They bring gratitude in. Um, they bring grounding practices into their meetings with their clients. So, so they A, practice it in their own lives. And then B, it, it, it's like there are these little touch points in their meetings where they incorporate it, not with everybody, but with people who are receptive to it and who are seekers for something grounding and who, you know, who, who, want clarity and who want to be, um, they want a nervous system that is more downregulated. Uh, so you can do that. So when I talk about well-being, I'm, I'm really talking about, yes, the decision-making, but your way of being, elevating their way of being, and the things that you do that you can teach them to do in their own lives 
that will elevate their well-being as well. Does that help? Absolutely. Seth Godin, when he talks about tribes, often say, people like us do things like this. And for me, it just sounds like the work that you're doing are for people that's ready to pursue this. And maybe even the financial advisors, the type of clients that they are attracting would resonate with this, you know, and find that. And that almost by itself becomes a marketing engine to drive new business. Am I on the right train here? Yes. I have an exercise, as you know, early on where where you just um, look at what you've done during your day and you precede it with, I'm the kind of person who, you know, I'm the kind of person who gets up early. Um, or I'm the kind of person who, you know, gets up hungover, doesn't exercise, shows up late to me. Uh-oh. You know, so you write down what you've done, every little thing, because you're the kind of person who does that. And, and including, including doing inner work, including uh, caring about the well-being of your clients, including realizing the responsibility of being a nervous system who can help regulate others, who can improve the well-being of others just by the way you are. You can actually improve somebody's well-being just by sitting there and being you, even over Zoom. Like, that's powerful. And wouldn't you want to do that? And then also, wouldn't you want to notice, instead of having somebody else say, dude, chill out, wouldn't you want somebody, like I have to say sometimes to my kid, <laughs> wouldn't you want to notice for yourself, wow, this is, it's really getting crazy inside me. It's really getting activated. I'm really activated for some reason. And I need to do something about this before I talk to my child, before I have this meeting, you know, before I, I take another step, I need to get my, my own house in order here. And I don't know why you wouldn't want to do that. Because whether you know it or not, you're affecting yourself and everybody else with your way of being. It's just in which direction and is it a choice or not? And that's, you know, that's up to each individual. Mary, for our listeners, where would they be able to find Mindfulness for Financial Advisors, the book, and also uh, your MBSR courses that you host? Um, www.marymartinphd.com. And the reason I have the PhD, I have to say this. So Mary Martin is this really famous person. She was the first Peter Pan. There are so many Mary Martins. I don't know what my parents were thinking by naming me Mary Martin because there's like 5 million Mary Martins. So it's really hard for me to get a website domain. Um, and <laughs> so that's why it's not because I think I'm fantastic with my doctorate, but it's the only way I could get a .com. Um, and that is you can get a free chapter of the book. Um, the book will be there in two weeks and everywhere books are sold. And um, the MBSR class is the next one. The uh, one starts this week. The next one starts in April. And then there's um, a class for advisors that's like pretty much every season. One starts on Thursday and the next one starts in April. Thank you so much for being here today and the wonderful work that you do to promote this industry and to move it forward. Uh, it is very important and it is life-changing, definitely. As someone that's experienced this and has worked through a lot of what you put out. Uh, it's highly recommended and just wanted to say thank you again, Mary. Well, thank you for being a pioneer and thank you for having me. Mm -hmm.